Well, let's pray. This is your word, Father, and we want to listen carefully to what you've said. I pray that today as we talk about the city, as we talk about society, and the relationship between the gospel and this city, the gospel and society, that you would use this to stir up great effectiveness among your people to love others who don't know you and to advance the kingdom. So I ask for help now. Help me to speak faithfully your word in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, two verses that we're, that we're kind of launching from today. This, this sermon is called The Gospel in the City. And when I say city today, just, just hear society. Secular society. Two verses. And I'm just going to read through them again. Catherine, if you don't mind popping them back up there. Um, the first one from Mark chapter 1. You should flip open because we'll, we'll, uh, we'll visit them throughout. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He's proclaiming good news. The gospel of God. And he's saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's at hand. It's right upon us. The kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God is upon us. And then John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus talks about this kingdom, and listen to how he talks about it. My kingdom is not of this world. This kingdom of God that is at hand, Jesus clarifies, as he's on trial here with Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, like with swords. Like Peter did. But it was a mistake, wasn't it? When Peter, when Peter cut off the, the ear of the servant, uh, Malchus, Jesus says, put away your sword. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews and be here on this trial right now in the court of the Roman uh, judicial system. But my kingdom is not from the world. The kingdom of God. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? If we understand this, it's going to take us a long ways in understanding what role Christians have in society. So I want to, I want to start by focusing on the kingdom of God and trying to understand what the nature of the kingdom of God is so that we can, so that we can then take some, some steps and ask some practical questions about what it means for us as Christians to interact with society. And I'm going to do this, um, here's the layout of the sermon. I'm going to make two statements, and then I'm going to answer two questions. Try to answer two questions. Two statements and two questions. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the nature of, king, of the kingdom of God from the perspective of what a first century Jew would have thought when he heard Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. What would, what would they have heard? What would they have thought when they heard that? 
And the way that we're going to try to figure that out is by looking at what kind of kingdom Israel was. What kind of Israel, what kind of kingdom was Israel and what kind of kingdom was Israel expecting to come? And I'm going to make my first statement here. The first statement is this. Israel was a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy. This is a theocracy. This is a definition by uh, a guy named Meredith Klein, one of my favorite theologians. Klein says that a theocracy is a kingdom realm whose great king is the Lord. Where all activity is performed in the name of the God King, enthroned, confessed, and worshipped in the cultic epicenter, that is, in the temple. The God King is in His temple. It's the, it's the epicenter of worship. It's where He's enthroned as King. Whence, or from where, this temple is the place from where theocratic holiness radiates outward, permeating all, so that the whole realm land and people is a sanctuary of the Creator Lord. The entirety of society is a sanctuary. The High King of Heaven has set up camp on the earth. In the temple. So Exodus 15 Verse 17, you don't need to turn there. Here's Moses looking forward at some day when Israel goes into the land, they're going to be, uh, there's going to be a temple. Here's Moses prophesying what that's going to be. And he says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The temple is the abode of Yahweh of God, of the Lord. It's the abode, it's where he abides, it's where he dwells. Now when Solomon builds the temple, he says that it is the dwelling place of God. And then he kind of and then he try, he, he kind of realizes that this is a crazy idea that God would dwell in a temple made with human hands. And yet listen to how Solomon talks about this when he talks about praying toward the temple. He's built the temple, he's dedicating the temple, and he's praying to God and he's saying this, when we pray, we ask that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, this temple, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. So when Solomon prays, he's going to face the temple and he's going to pray. Why? It's where God is. He's dwelling in the land, in the temple. He's placing his name there. A theocracy is when heaven's high king has set up camp on the earth, in the temple. It's the blending of two realms. It's the heavenly realm coming to the earthly realm, and there's a blending of the two. And in that place where Yahweh dwells, that earthly domain, that temple on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, the entirety of society is under his reign because he's the high king of the land. 
The law of the land is the law of God. His law is the law of Israel's land. The people who live in that land are his people. They bear his name because it's his nation. The military is Yahweh's military. The judicial system is Yahweh's judicial system. And it's going to be conducted according to his design. The soil in which the crops grow is Yahweh's land. So you do agriculture the way he tells you to do it. The national holidays are mandatory times of social remembrance, celebration, and worship of Yahweh. Mandatory. This is Yahweh's nation. And there are two major implications for the fact that God's presence is in Israel and God is reigning in theocratic manner over this nation. Two main, uh, major implications. The, and one is that the land is sacred space. It's sacred space. This is a holy nation. And since Yahweh lives in the land, it's considered a holy nation. Land, Psalm 78:54. It's a holy land. Why? Yahweh's there. Jerusalem is considered the holy city, Isaiah 52:1. And because it's a holy land, it must be kept pure. So if you blaspheme the name of Yahweh in Israel, you will be killed. Leviticus 24:16. If you worship a false god, you will be killed, Deuteronomy 17.5. If you commit adultery, you are to be killed, Deuteronomy 22.22. When Israel enters the land of Canaan in in Joshua's conquest, they are to demolish the idolatrous nations. Everyone. And on and on you could go and read your Old Testament and see the reality of theocratic reign in the land of Israel. It was sacred space. The second major implication is that God is going to uniquely care for the nation of Israel. God uniquely cared for the nation of Israel. It not only was sacred space, but God's going to do special things for them. So you can look at the promises of the Mosaic Covenant in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, and what you're going to find that most of them are very physical, geopolitical, and social in their nature. These are, these are the kinds of benefits that Yahweh gives to this nation. Good cities, good crops, lots of children, lots of livestock, lots of food, mili- military success against invading nations, peace in the land. These are all promises that Yahweh gives to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, of course, those blessings, those promises were contingent upon Israel's obedience to the uh, Mosaic Covenant, which they failed to provide. So what did Yahweh do? Anybody remember in Ezekiel 10 what happens? Like, everybody's like, no, I haven't been meditating on Ezekiel 10 recently. (laughs) Yahweh leaves the temple. He leaves. And what happens? The nations pounce Israel. Covenant curses. Why? Yahweh's not there anymore. He has removed himself from the situation and the theocratic blessings are removed. 
and the covenant curses come on Israel. They're completely destroyed. Their nation is destroyed. But as long as Israel, Israel obeyed, Yahweh would remain with them in their temple and bless their land, bless their nation. Okay, so this, that's what a theocracy is. It's what a theocracy looks like. It's the full consecration of society. Full conse- you know, consecration set apart distinctly for the uses of God. It's the full consecration of all of society. The manifestation of God's kingly reign over every element of geopolitical, national, and civic life. So that's how a theocracy functions. This is really going to help you read your Old Testament. Both in, both in the pr- kinds of promises that are, that are offered to Israel, okay, and to the kinds of threats that were threatened against Israel. Very physical, very geopolitical. It's going to help you read your New Testament too, and it's going to help you know what, how to process your Old Testament as a Christian who's not living in Israel or Israel's theocracy. We'll get there in a second. Theocracy. It's happened twice in the history of creation. Once in Eden and once in Israel. It will happen a third time. Only the next time, it will be the ultimate expression of Yahweh's kingly reign over all creation. Revelation 21, starting in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, that is the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It's sacred space. Listen to this. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? Eden and Israel were foreshadows of a coming theocratic reign of Yahweh where he is going to rule the entirety of creation and it's going to be manifest in every element of creation. This is the destiny of creation and it's what will happen when Jesus returns and it's what the Jews thought was going to happen when the Messiah came the first time. So when Jesus arrives and says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What they expected was the installation of the Messiah's all-encompassing theocratic kingly reign over the earth. And when he died on a cross, it did not make sense to them. The son of David is supposed to gather the sons of Israel from exile, Hosea Hosea 3.5. And God will judge the nations, Joel 3. And Israel will rebuild ruined cities and plant vineyards and gardens and drink wine and eat fruit and live in the land forever, Amos chapter 9. And much to their surprise, Jesus did not establish a theocracy in his first coming, which is the second statement I want to make. 
The first statement is this. Israel was a theocracy. The second statement is this. There is no theocracy today. There is no theocracy today. There is no geopolitical kingdom, nation, society. That is God's nation in the same way that Israel was God's nation. Now, there is a sense in which every nation is God's, God's nation in the sense that he owns the universe. But God has not said of any geopolitical nation or any national society, civic society, this is where my name will dwell like he did with Israel. The United States of America is not God's nation any more than Sudan is or Mexico. And there was no such thing as the so-called Holy Roman Empire. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that he inaugurated, does not consist in the same nature as the kingdoms, that is, the societies of this world. John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would be acting very differently right now as I'm being put on trial and about to be murdered. But my kingdom is not of this world. The nature of the kingdom of God consists consists in and advances in a realm that is invisible to the naked eye. It's not of this world. It's not of this age. The kingdom of God is a heavenly kingdom. That's why Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven sometimes. It's the kingdom of the age to come. A new creation that God promises. And in fact, it has already now made an introduction into the present time, into our world. The kingdom is among us, but it's not of us, of this age of this world. And because of that, it doesn't fundamentally consist in the establishment of or the so-called redemption of national and civic societies. We don't legislate the kingdom of God into existence. The kingdom of God consists in the presence of a heavenly visitor, namely the Holy Spirit. He is of the age to come. He is here with us. The kingdom of God consists in his realm. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a Holy Spirit kingdom. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is a Holy Spirit kingdom. It advances when the Holy Spirit humbles the hearts of rebels so that they look at the Savior King Jesus and they bow their hearts before him. That's when the kingdom advances, when Jesus is king of the heart because the Holy Spirit has broken into your world. That's how the kingdom advances when King Jesus is honored in your heart. And it never happens apart from the proclamation and acceptance of the gospel of Christ crucified. Never happens apart from that. So, two major implications of the fact that there is no theocracy today. That is, there is no 
God's kingdom doesn't consist in the geopolitical, national, civic institutions of the present age. Two implications. And the first is this. This is good news. When earthly society falls, God's kingdom is unshaken. In the 4th century, Constantine the Great made a big mistake and made Christianity the official religion of the empire. And he so blended the church and the empire that a hundred years later, when Alaric the Goth in 410 sacked Rome, people were flipping out because God's kingdom was coming down. And it was Augustine who had to respond to the problem, the theological mess created by Constantine's blending of the church's agenda and the nation's agenda. And Augustine's solution was, there are two cities here. One is called the city of God. This is one of Augustine's most important works. The city of God is his attempt to explain that when Civic society falls, the kingdom of God is not threatened because the kingdom of God does not consist in civic society. This is good news. If, if society uh, decays morally, if it, deca- if it decays politically, if it de- decays militarily, if it's overrun, the kingdom of God has not suffered harm. Why not? Because the kingdom is not of this world. We are just passing through Augustine would say, we're just passing through. We're, we're pilgrims. We're on pilgrimage. And even though we care about and participate in and promote the health of the earthly society, we don't put our hope in it. Because this is not the kingdom of God. The second implication of the fact that there is no theocracy today is that the kingdom's advancement does not consist in Christian conquest of the institutions of earthly society. The kingdom's advancement does not consist in the conquest of the institutions of earthly society. And this was the fundamental mistake of the Crusades. They believed that the kingdom of God consisted in the geopolitical, civic institutions of the world. Things like governments, lands, cities, society. So when they set out to advance the kingdom... What was their method? Political, military, geographical, civic, social conquest of unbelievers. It was a fundamental mistake because they misunderstood the nature of God's kingdom. And there are a lot of unbelievers today who are angry and afraid that Christians are on a mission to socially conquer them, not through the preaching of the gospel, but through, the, uh, through a coercive, legislative, institutional imposition of their distinctly religious convictions onto society. They're, 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 they're afraid that Christians are trying to create a distinctly Christian society. Why they're not afraid of uh, Muslims doing that, many of them are not afraid of Muslims doing that, is a mystery to me. Because many, of, many Muslims have a very theocratic mentality. And so do many Christians. 
Christians insisting that the Ten Commandments are hung up on the walls of our courts or demanding that we maintain in God we trust on our money. Christians that talk about taking our nation back for Jesus or talk about redeeming the culture for Jesus. What, what they hear, what unbelievers hear when we talk that way and what we mean, many of us when we talk that way, is that we're trying to build a Christian society. We're acting like theocrats. They're afraid of, and what we're actually promoting is a crusade-like invasion of the Christian religion into the institutional infrastructure of the nation, or the city, or society. This is not good, because there is no theocracy. Their anger, their fear is biblically justified. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The church has not been assigned the mission of creating a theocracy. And this is one of the reasons why historically the Protestants have maintained a clear separation of church and state. This is one of the reasons. Don't let the church's agenda drive the state. Don't let the state's agenda drive the church. God has given them different roles. He's assigned them different responsibilities in the world. Okay, so those are my two statements. Israel was a theocracy. There is no theocracy today. Okay, question. If society is not something to be conquered by God's kingdom and the church, then how do you view the city? How do you view secular society? It's not something that's supposed to be conquered. And the answer fundamentally consists in this. Secular society is a realm or an environment of what we would call common Grace. Common grace. Has to be distinguished from saving grace or special grace, which is uniquely given to the church. This is, it's, it's a common grace environment. The city is a place where God is pouring out his goodness to both believers and unbelievers alike. The Christian, the Muslim, the Mormon, the atheist... They're all receiving God's unearned goodness in the form of governmental legislation, national and civic protection, medicine, education, technology, entertainment, commerce, science. These are all gifts from God to society, to mankind, in a common environment. God has established secular society not as the realm of his salvation or redemption, but as a realm in which he distributes his common grace to humanity. You can see this in Romans chapter 13, for example. I know the questions are turning right now. We'll, get, we'll, we'll answer some of those. Romans chapter 13. Here's the, established, here's the institution of a common grace uh, element of society. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. This is being written to the church in Rome. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Romans 13, 1 and 2. God has instituted the governing authorities. And they have a very specific job to do. 
Paul goes on to describe. Okay, so is that God's kingdom then? Not in the sense that Jesus is talking about, because you'll remember that Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Paul has said in Romans 13 that God put Pilate into that position. In fact, Jesus told Pilate, you remember this discussion? Don't you realize that I have the authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say? You would have no authority if God hadn't given it to you. So Pontius Pilate is placed in this position, this position of governing authority over Judea. And it's in that context, that context of a God-ordained, a God-instituted kingdom, that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You have two kingdoms, both of them instituted by God, One of them is for the common good. One of them is uniquely for the church, the city of God. It's a common grace society. And it's not to be identified as the kingdom of God. And because it's a common grace society, secular society consists of common participation. The city is not a holy, consecrated realm of sacred space. We're not going to turn it into a holy land. We don't kill the idolaters we work with. Does that make sense? This is not sacred space. If you work with an atheist, do not kill them tomorrow at work. Uh, You know, in the name of God. And we don't fire them because of those kinds of things. We don't prevent them from sharing their opinions. In appropriate settings, free speech is a very good thing in a common society. You can tell me what you think, and I will tell you what I think, and you better believe I'm going to try to persuade you. But I am not going to stick a sword in your chest in order to establish God's kingdom, because the kingdom's not of this world. Instead, we work side by side with them in this common society, and that's right where God wants us side by side with him. And he's got a reason for it. We'll come back to that. So, if you're anything like me, you're in the workplace, and you start seeing the incredible wickedness of the people that you're working with. I mean, the things that they're talking, they're just talking about getting hammered, and they're talking about who they're sleeping with, and they're going into subjects that you do not even want to listen to. It can be hard. It can be hard to just kind of stay put and affirm this like the, like the value of even this human being sometimes because it's just so perverse. And especially if you're all, if you're all mixed up, wondering how am I supposed to relate to this? And I don't know, you know, this person is a homosexual and I don't even, the Bible says that that's not good and I don't know if I'm supposed to, you know, is it okay for me to go over to dinner, over to their house for dinner or uh, I, don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to interact with secular society when it's, getting all, when the, when it's full of all this common... Uh, theocracy would be a little easier if we could just say, let's just clean it up. So if you're anything like me, it just can feel really weird. It can be really hard to be there. So let me give you two things that I think common grace, understanding common grace, two things that I think will help 
And the first is this. You can affirm that God does good and beautiful things in the world through people who do not love him. He is their creator. He is the mastermind behind what they do. He's given them gifts. He's given them a brain. He's given them incredible athletic ability, incredible artistic ability, incredible whatever. They crunch numbers well. This is, this is God's creation. And they may not give him glory, but he's getting glory. And he's giving grace to society through them. Not saving grace, common grace. So doctors who worship Allah, God's common grace to the city. And you can praise God for that. And you can work next to that person. And you can affirm, you're very good at what you do. And in the right kinds of environments, you can talk to him about his God. Probably shouldn't do it on the when you've got a patient on the table. Teachers, very good teachers, who are cheating on their wives. Very good at what they do. You can praise God for that. God's common grace to the city. Amazing artists who are practicing homosexuals. Right? I heard Adam Lambert's song this week. Uh, what do you want from me? I cannot get it out of my head. I want to. I can't. Guy does not live a good lifestyle in the sight of God. Lady Gaga, whatever. You, like you hear it and you're like, man, she actually has a really, really nice voice. Praise God. Okay? You have to use some discernment with some of these things, but I'm just trying to say we can affirm the goodness of God's creative beauty that is being manifest in the lives of all kinds of people who don't love him, and he still gets glory. Okay, So that's the first insight from common grace that I think helps us kind of stay put and, and be involved and be able to like affirm the goodness of God in what we're seeing in the world around us. The second way that I think it helps is... is Regarding your participation, even though this, even though Terrytown is not a sacred, holy realm that needs to be consecrated, at least until Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, he'll do it. Okay? Until then, we're side by side with them. Right? We're, we're in exile. When you're living your life out there, it's not a holy, sacred realm, but it is not an evil realm, per se. In and of itself, it is not an evil realm. It's not a dirty realm. And your participation in it is not dirty. You can go to the bank and not feel like, oh, it's secular. Dirty. Now, there are, I know that sounds crazy, but there are people who have established entire Christian townships for these kinds of reasons. Okay? There is nothing dirty or evil or corrupted about living in secular society. Now, the way that you live out there, you could become corrupted. Okay? You, you, there are, you have to still make, you have to live a righteous life in the midst of it, but it is not an evil realm per se. So you can live there and you can work there and in fact, it's where God has actually called most of us. It's where you are called for most of you. 
An eager new convert once said to Martin Luther, this is, this is such a cool story. Okay, what do I do now? Just became a Christian. What do I, what do, I do? And he was kind of expecting, like, should I become a traveling evangelist or should I become a, a monk? Or, I mean, wow, I want to do, totally devote my life to God. And Luther said, well, what do you do now? He said, I'm a, I'm a cobbler. I make shoes. And Luther said, make a good shoe. Sell it at a fair price. That's how you glorify God in your calling in the city. It's not, it's not a dirty realm. Christians are called there. Most of you are called there. So, go to the bank, buy groceries, grab a Starbucks, catch a movie, plant a tree. Live out there. Do your job, pay your taxes, respect your boss, even if she doesn't love Jesus. And do it all for the glory of God. Okay? So the question was, how do you view society? Answer, common grace. It's a common grace realm. Second question, and the fourth point, and the last point. What is the Christian's role in society then? All of this time, I'm building a paradigm to get to this point. What's the Christian's role? And I'm going to talk about it in two ways. One, I'm going to very briefly talk about the role of the institutional church, this local church, New Hope Fellowship, and then I'm going to talk about the role of the individual Christian. And that's where I want to focus most of the time. The church, this gathering is a unique covenant community. It's unlike the city. She has a very Jesus-centered assignment. The church's job is to gather God's people to worship. That's what we're doing this morning. To baptize, partake in the Lord's Supper, disciple believers, and proclaim the gospel. It's the church's job. With regards to outward advancement, church, I think, has really two, two major things with regards to outward advancement. One, plant more churches. Two, and this is, this is, I don't know if I want to say it's primary. I think the second one may be primary. It's at, it at least deserves serious emphasis. Equip individual believers to be missionaries in society. It's an equipping, it's mainly an equipping facility, an equipping congregation. Notice I didn't say that the church's primary job with regards to outreach is to have community outreach projects or to have big evangelistic concerts or major community events. There's nothing wrong with those. There's nothing evil about those. They're good, they're just not primary. I'll tell you why in just a minute, but but first let me me explain the role of the individual Christian. I think it'll make more sense. The role of the individual Christian. And I would argue that the individual Christian is the main source of gospel advancement in the city because God has placed most of us side by side in a common culture with people who don't know Jesus. Jesus. It's where you spend most of your life. Most of your life. 
is outside the church walls and it's focused on the daily duties that God has given you in society. The duties of home, the duties of work, excuse me, the duties of civic engagement. And it's in these very environments that God intends to use Christians to, to live. So, sorry about that, guys. Uh, it's in these environments that God in, intends to use Christians to live salty, light-bearing, missionary-like lives in the presence of a society of unbelievers. So these, I'm going to give you four encouragements. You, you can apply this tomorrow morning. <clears throat> four encouragements for the individual Christians. One, live in the city. Live in, the, live in society. Don't fear the common ground. It's not dirty just because it's not a realm of redemption. You, you can be there. Okay? Do jazzercise class or whatever you, whatever you want to do. I, no, does jazzercise even exist anymore? Okay? Swim lessons. Whatever. Get, okay, that's for the kids. Get, get out there. Live in the city. It's cool. It's not dirty. <clears throat> You don't have to turn the city or your office or the courtroom or the company car into a Jesus fest in order to honor God and what you're doing. It honors God when you fulfill your duty, fulfill your calling by performing your job well with a worshipful heart. If you're a plumber, Michael Horton says, you don't have to install Christian pipes. Just be a good plumber. There's no such thing, right? It's a Christian pipe. Avoid building the Christian ghetto. This is also Horton's term. This is where Christians decide not to participate in the institutions of secular society, and instead they create Christian alternatives, like the Christian coffee shop, as though it's not still secular. It's still secular. Because it's of this world. The Christian skate park, the Christian Halloween carnival, the Christian Super Bowl party. I mean, it's a Halloween carnival, it's a Super Bowl party, it's a skate park, it's a coffee shop. And what you've done, instead of doing it out there where you're supposed to be shining and salty, you've made a ghetto. You have to watch out for that. Now, there are certain reasons why, for the sake of growing in your faith, you might for a season, especially with young children, uh, or, or maybe if you've come out of a, of a, of a background where you've have, have had a bad drug problem or something, where you need to kind of pull away. You know, there are certain situations, but just don't, just don't have the category of, I have to build a Christian alternative to every thing in the city. Live in the city. Be salty out there. Don't build ghettos. Number two. Promote the health of the city. Promote the health of society. Jeremiah 29.7, Israel is in exile. She's not in her holy land. She's not under theocratic reign right now. God says to Israel, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Okay, Do good in the city. 1 Timothy 2.2, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do good in the city. Be a peaceful and a helpful and an exemplary citizen. Make a good shoe. 
and sell it at a fair price, as Luther said. Don't just, uh, up to this point it might sound like just live out there, just be out there. Live righteously out there. A good shoe, a fair price. Seek and defend justice and health and honesty and goodness and integrity in whatever spheres you're drawn to and whatever spheres you're called to. Whether you're a politician or the leader of a nonprofit or a business owner or a secretary or a mom who's meeting other moms at the library, do good in the city. Recycle, you know, or whatever. Just do good wherever wherever you're at. And though you're not installing the kingdom of God when you do good in the city, you are doing it to the glory of God as an act of worship because the entirety of your life is consecrated to God. It's an act of worship. And through that act of love for your neighbors, your life is telling a story. As you're in the midst of this city, it's telling the story of another city, a city that you truly call home. And that city is a stable, eternal, heavenly, peaceful, righteous city. And when you live here in light of that, its light is shining a ray through you in the presence of this city. And Philippians 2.14 is happening. You shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Because you're living in this city as a pilgrim, doing good in light of that city. Three, don't put your hope in the city. This was Augustine's warning. Don't put your hope in this city. We're only sojourners here. We're only passing through. The earthly society is only temporary. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. So we're going to do as much good as we can while we're here. But this isn't home. And I don't put my hope here. Okay? So if we do all kinds of great acts of love in the city, and it makes some changes, and then in 20 years, those changes start going the other direction. The kingdom is not falling. This isn't home. This isn't the kingdom. Fourth. But what are, what are our three? One, live in the city. Two, do good in the city. Three, don't put your hope in the city. Fourth, live like a missionary. Live like a missionary. As you work and live side by side with others in a common society. And as you do good for the city and promote the, the common peace and the common health, Invite others to join you in your journey to the heavenly city. Okay. Invite them not to put their... Invite them. Don't put your hope here in this city that's falling. There will be plenty of opportunities to point that out, by the way. Put your hope in the stable city. That's where I'm going. Share the gospel. Pray for, look for opportunities to share the gospel. Augustine, this is, listen to how Augustine says this. While this heavenly city, meaning believers, while this heavenly city, therefore, is on pilgrimage in this world, as we're passing through, she calls out citizens from all nations and so collects a society of aliens. 
That's what we are. This is a society of aliens who have been called out of the city where there was common grace into this special gathering where there is saving grace on the lives of each person who's trusting in Jesus. God has poured it out. And He is gathering a community of aliens. And we say together, this is not our home. We live here. We're doing good here. We love these people. This is not our home. We look forward to another city that is incorruptible. It's imperishable. It's coming. It's not here yet. We're just tasting the foretastes of it. And we're on pilgrimage here. And this is what I would refer to as a missional lifestyle. All the, these, these, these things, you're living in society, you're doing good for society without putting your hope in society and you're sharing the gospel. This is a missional lifestyle. Okay? So a few minutes ago I said that the church's primary job with regards to outreach is not to have community, big, you know, community outreach projects or events. Its primary job is to equip individuals to live like missionaries in society. And the reason that I say that is because what I've just described, this missional mentality, is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's the day in, day out, rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. It's cultural, purposeful, intentional, cultural immersion. In those situations as God's called you to each and every day. It's in our everyday lives that God intends to most effectively accomplish His purposes outside the church walls. And what happens in a lot of churches is the emphasis will fall on programs, projects. And the burden, the burden gets placed on the, sh- the shoulders of the institution rather than on the shoulders of the individual who is called to live this out every single day. And they save their purposeful, intentional love for the city for Project Day. They're not cultivating this purposeful lifestyle. Talking to their co-workers, having dinner with their neighbors, meeting the moms at swim lessons, scheduling play dates, very intentional, living on a mission, missional lifestyles. So we go to Pizza Capri here in Terrytown. And we've had the same waitress two, I can't remember if it's two or three times, but at least twice. Right? We're get, we, we know her name. She's a Packers fan. Okay? We know where she grew up. We know generally where she's living now. We know the, what she, uh, how, how the school systems work from kind of her perspective. I mean, we're just getting to know her. Why? We're on a mission. You better believe my intention is to someday hopefully share the gospel with this woman. We're trying to connect in our common area okay so outreach is far more an issue of lifestyle than it is event that's what we're trying to cultivate here that's what this is all about I'm pushing a missional lifestyle immersion just think about the way Jesus did it right wasn't a weekend project It was 33-year immersion. Let's pray. King Jesus, Lord of the nations.
You own it all. But the church, because of your grace, is already bowing her knee. And so I pray that you would come and fill us with a passion to love the city in a way that understands the nature of your kingdom, in a way that is intentional about doing good but isn't putting our hope in the city. We don't build false expectations. We don't conquer society. But we rub elbows and we love. And we share this priceless message of Christ crucified. And in that way you conquer the nations as hearts bow down to the kingship of Jesus. And the nations are flooding in now to your temple, as the prophets say. The nations are flooding in to the temple of God. For the glory of your name, use this church body. Use it here in Terrytown. Use it in the respective communities of where these people live. Help people to live on mission wherever they're at. And gather for yourself, Father, communities of aliens. This church, other churches here in Terrytown, other churches here in New York. And we will give you the glory. Thank you for the promise of the city that's coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.